to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you struggle to fall asleep? Do you struggle to stay asleep? Do you think that you just don't get enough sleep? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you've come to the right place. My guest today is Diane Macedo. She's an anchor for ABC News. She's also a former insomniac. She started looking into sleep problems when she found herself struggling to sleep, even when she was taking sleeping pills. She uncovered that there are a lot of misconceptions about sleep, and some simple strategies that can help people sleep better. Now she's written a book called The Sleep Fix. It shares what she uncovered when she read countless studies and interviewed a variety of sleep experts. The strategies she learned worked for her, and she's confident they can help you sleep better too. Some of the things she talks about today are some of the biggest myths about sleep, the strategies that can help you sleep better, and the realistic ways to get better quality sleep. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's a part of the show where I'll break down Diane's strategies and talk about how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Diane Macedo on how fixing your sleep can help you grow mentally stronger. Diane Macedo, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Amy, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you for lots of reasons, but one of them being that you wrote this book, The Sleep Fix, out of your own sort of necessity, which I think some of the best books are written because we have a problem, we want to solve it, and so we become investigators who want to know the best answers. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you wrote this book? Yeah, so I had sleep trouble, sleep problems for years, really. And for a long time, I just sort of assumed, oh, that's just how I'm built, um, which I learned is pretty common. And eventually it got bad enough that I just couldn't ignore it anymore. So I started trying, you know, all the typical listicle sleep tips and tricks and none of it worked for me. In fact, a lot of it, I think, just made me worse. Um, Eventually, I went to my doctor and she encouraged me to start taking Ambien, even though I was really hesitant. And for a while, that was like magic. You know, I would take this little pill and a half an hour later, I would be asleep no matter what. But eventually, even the Ambien stopped working. And so I kind of got desperate and I I went to a sleep doctor. I got evaluated for sleep apnea. We ruled that out. And I just started doing a lot of research specifically on insomnia because I suspected that was my problem. But we're talking like reading, you know, sleep textbooks, not reading kind of, you know, what's on the bestseller list. And that's where I found my real answers. And in about three weeks, I went from sleeping maybe three hours a day to sleeping six and a half hours of good quality sleep. Um, And that was, you know, evaluated by a a sleep study. So big, big difference in a short period of time. And I was shocked at actually how kind of practical and doable a lot of the stuff stuff was. And mind you, I did that while working an overnight shift. And what I had heard throughout while searching for answers over and over again was, you know, if you're going to want to sleep again, you're going to want to quit your job. Um, and that just wasn't realistic for me. So luckily I'm really stubborn and I didn't accept that. And as you pointed out, I did kind of my own investigating and I found that there are a lot of answers out there and I'm talking based in science, based in research, based on what clinicians say, it just, for whatever reason, hasn't made it into the popular zeitgeist yet. And so 
I ended up writing the book that I wish had existed when I was struggling. And what do you think are some of the biggest myths that we have about sleep and what we need to do to sleep better? Oh, God, there's so many. Um, I think I'll start with the eight hours because I think that one's probably the biggest and most pervasive. This idea that there's a recommended eight hours of sleep. Saying everybody needs the same amount of sleep is like saying everybody needs the same amount of food to be full. It's just not true. If you look at the National Sleep Foundation guidelines, they say for most people, it's going to fall between seven and nine hours, which in and of itself is a pretty big range. But if you keep looking at those guidelines, the range for adults that may be appropriate is anywhere between five and 11 hours. That is a huge range. And I think we always think about the repercussions of what will happen if you are an eight or nine hour person and you only get six hours. But nobody talks about the opposite side of that coin. If you are a six-hour person and you're trying to force yourself to get eight hours because you've been convinced that you need eight hours, you're going to give yourself insomnia because we end up fragmenting our sleep when we do that. So you start waking up throughout the night or you take a long time to fall asleep. And the more time we spend awake and worrying in bed, the more our brain starts to form an association that bed is the place where we stay awake and worry. And so soon you start becoming that person who's down, you know, kind of dozing off on the couch. And then suddenly, as soon as you lay in bed, you feel wide awake and you have no idea why. And it's so frustrating. It's because your brain has learned that bed is where we stay awake and worry. And this kind of mental autopilot has kicked in. And now bed has become a cue for wakefulness and worry. And that is actually the calling card of chronic insomnia. And so if you then want to address that issue, you have to attack it from multiple areas. But it is so frequently the eight-hour myth that gets us into that situation to begin with. And very quickly, I want to address another issue with that, which is a lot of people, I think, are walking around ignoring sleep disorders because they think they couldn't possibly have one because they're getting the recommended eight hours not realizing that even though they think they're getting a full night of sleep, their sleep is disrupted all night long because they have something like sleep apnea, for example, or, or periodic limb movement disorder, common, common issues that will disrupt your sleep without you realizing it. And so people are walking around severely sleep deprived, but they think that they are doing just fine because in their minds, they're getting the recommended eight hours of sleep. So I tell people to check in with themselves instead of kind of looking at the hours on the clock. It's about how you feel. If you feel like you need a nap all day, if you're that person who's always falling asleep in a waiting room, then that's a sign something's wrong. And if you feel like you're spending enough time in bed and getting enough sleep, then that means something is disrupting your sleep. And on the flip side of that, if you walk around all day and you feel fine, you feel like your energy levels are good, then you're probably getting enough sleep, even if it's not, you know, the recommended eight hours. Oh, so I like all of that. And a question I have from that, we talked to Dr. Chris Winter on our podcast mm -hmm. uh, recently. I know, I know you him interviewed well. him for your book. I did. One of the things that surprised me in talking to him was he said, if you're laying in bed and you aren't falling asleep, to just look at it as rest, but to stay in bed. I know a lot of other experts say if you are in bed and you aren't sleeping, get up and go do something else so that you don't associate being in bed with not sleeping. What's your thoughts on what's the best strategy if you're laying, in, laying there, you aren't falling asleep? Should you get back up or should you stay there? I think it depends on how relaxed you can be about that, oh, I'm just getting some rest part. If you genuinely, you feel relaxed and you're not frustrated, then I think you can stay in bed and just sort of enjoy that, that relaxing moment. It's when you start feeling yourself getting frustrated and you're wondering, 
Why am I awake? Am I going to fall asleep? How long much, how much longer do I have? And now you, you do that thing where you check the clock and you start doing the math. If I fall asleep right now, I can still get seven hours, et cetera. It's that arousal, uh, as the term is called in sleep science, that is what keeps you awake. And the longer you sort of sit in bed and have that negative self-talk and start to worry, not only does it make it harder to sleep in the short run, but again, you're strengthening that association as bed is where we stay awake and worry. So I think if you're in a position where you actually can be relaxed about it, then yeah, even if you're not sleeping, close your eyes and you enjoy that relaxing moment that you're having in bed. But if you start to feel yourself getting frustrated, that's when you get out of bed. And and that's why actually in my book, I wrote several guides and one of them has to do with this rule. And after talking to several sleep clinicians, you know, I decided to not write what is usually written in these guidelines, which is if you find yourself awake in bed for 15 minutes or 20 minutes, get out of bed. Instead of putting a time on it, I just said, if you find yourself awake in bed long enough to feel frustrated, get out of bed, do something enjoyable, relaxing, and then go back to bed. I like that. That's good advice. So in terms of when we sleep, how much does that matter in your research? Uh, in college, I worked with a friend. We worked the overnight hour at mm-hmm. a homeless shelter. We went to class all day. We worked all night. I'm not even sure when we slept. <laughs> she texted me last night and she said, my high schooler gets out of work at 10 p.m. I now have to set an alarm to go pick him up. She said, because I go to bed so early that I have to wake up to go pick him up from work because I'm now the person that goes to bed super early. Right? Does our our rhythm change over time? Are we, you're somebody that gets up super early. Are you able, does it matter that you go to bed earlier? Should we always have a set bedtime? Do we need to learn about ourselves when we go to sleep? How does that work? So a lot in there. Um, One, your rhythm does change over time. And really the only thing we can do to change our circadian rhythm is age. Normally we're more morning oriented as babies, right? Anyone with an infant, including me will know they often wake up pretty early. Um, And these are all general because there are exceptions to all of these rules. But generally, we're more morning-oriented as babies. As teens, we become more night-oriented, which is why a lot of people struggle with their teens being up late. Uh, And then as we get older, we tend to start skewing earlier and earlier and earlier. Uh, So going back to whether or not you can change it, Technically, the answer is no. You cannot teach your body to want to latch on to a different schedule, but there is a lot you can do to trick your body into thinking you changed your schedule. So since most of us can't change our schedule, that's kind of the other the, the other option here. And I lived this because I did all these sleep tricks while I was working a true overnight shift. I would go in at 10 or 11 p.m. I would get out around nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and then I would sleep. And this is something everyone thought was impossible, but by using my timed exposure to bright light, to darkness, when I ate, when I exercised and and things like that, you can also use melatonin, which I didn't. You can use all of these things, caffeine in some cases, to sort of trick your body into, into thinking it's either later in the day or earlier in the day than it actually is. So you kind of latch on. It feels like you're changing your circadian rhythm when you're really just sort of changing the environment around you. Love it. Because I think for some people, maybe they're night owls, but they have young kids. So you have to wake up really early. How do you figure all of that out? So knowing jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Jobs, kids, life. I mean, the idea that we're all going to be able to just rise and fall with the sun as our body wants to, you know, I wish it were true too, but it's just not. And I found it really frustrating when I went looking for answers and I just, just kept finding responses that were, well, here's, Basically, it's here's the ideal situation. And it made me feel like here's the only 
option for you. And and when I started digging deeper, I found, no, there are, maybe it's not a perfect solution, but it's a pretty good one. And sometimes in life, we have to choose between done and perfect. And and done is better than perfect if is perfect is not an option. Uh, and so, and uh, the, the other part of it is, ideally, you want to sleep in the largest continuous chunk of sleep that you can. So if you can lay down, you know, and get your full, you know, whatever you need, six and a half, seven, eight hours, whatever it is, and get that all in one shot, that is ideal. But particularly for people who sleep on the overnight shift, there are a lot of people who get that sleep in sort of two chunks. You'll have a longer stretch of sleep, five hours, six hours, whatever it is. And then often you'll find people who make it work by laying that down again for another hour and a half, let's say. And I, you know, one of the people in the book is, is uh, you know, my beloved producer, Jack Sheehan, who has been doing this for like 25 years, I think he's been on the overnight shift. And he does really well on the overnight shift and he does it sleeping in these two chunks. So I think people can sort of evaluate these things and find what works best for them instead of just sort of obsessing over, oh, but I read in this article that you have to do it this way and this is the only way. Yeah, there's so many articles in in magazines and you'll see snippets of things on the internet that tell you what to do, but I agree, we're all built differently. And I was thinking about sleep and I am an author that writes about what mentally strong people don't do because it only takes one or two bad habits to drain you of mental strength. Mm. But I was thinking sleep is probably very similar. And you talk a lot about bad habits, that no matter how many good sleep habits you have, if you have one or two bad habits, it might keep you awake at night. And so can we go through some of those bad habits that you talked about? I mean, I think this is where kind of myths come in because I think people have this impression that people with sleep problems tend to have really bad habits. And particularly in the case of insomnia, when I talk to clinicians, they say it's the opposite. They say their typical patient comes in and says, you know, I don't know what's wrong. I can't sleep. I can't fall asleep or I can't stay asleep, whatever their complaint is. And yet I've quit caffeine. I don't see any screens at night. You know, I I shut off all the computers and phones within two hours of my bedtime. I'm doing the tea and the lavender and whatnot. And I was that person. And interestingly enough, the clinicians will tell me that when they hear all that, they know right off the bat that person has insomnia because you're working so hard to make sleep happen and you're thinking so much about your sleep that it all backfires because you're putting your brain into work mode when you really are supposed to just be unwinding, which often is just chilling out and watching TV for most people. Uh, And now, because you're trying so hard to perfect your sleep, you've actually given yourself a problem. And so often this idea of bad habits and good habits, again, is really tailored to the person and what your problem is. Um, I think one that's kind of unexpected is you hear often the conversation around screens and it all surrounds uh, around blue light and your blue light exposure to the screens, which when you talk to sleep clinicians, it's like you can hear them rolling their eyes on the other end of the phone Because often the frustration that comes with giving up your screens in the evening and losing that period of just unwinding and hanging out has a far worse repercussion on your sleep than whatever blue light you were going to get from that screen. But the part that I found interesting is there's some new research coming out now that's saying that, at least showing, uh, indicating that what you're using the screens for has more of an impact on your sleep than the blue light that's coming from the screens. And so I kind of try to steer people in the book to, you know, A, if a screen curfew works for you, great, keep doing it. If you feel like it's making you worse because now you're losing the one thing that made you relax and stop thinking so much about sleep, 
then maybe bring the screens back, but you can do a few things to mitigate the negative impacts. And the blue light part is easy. Turn down the brightness, turn down the blue light levels, get a bit more distance from the screen, et cetera. And you can mitigate a lot of, a lot of that part of the equation. But also, particularly if you're on a phone, you want to prevent from ending up falling down that rabbit hole where, you know, you pick up the phone to do something really quick, like, you know, put in a grocery order, let's say, and three hours later, it's way past your bedtime. You're still scrolling Instagram and you still have no groceries, right? So there are things you can do for that too. And one is just choosing what you're going to use the screens for. Passive activities like watching TV is better than something that's active where you're a participant, like scrolling social media, reading and writing emails, playing a video game. And the other part, and there, there are a lot more tips, but my favorite one for this is something called I call the grayscale trick, which is you change the color filter in your phone to grayscale, and it turns the screen black and white. Everything else still works exactly the same, so you can still put it in order for something. You can go on Instagram. You can check your Twitter account, et cetera. But for some reason, not having everything in color makes it that much less addictive, so you're that much less likely to just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And I did this, Dr. Michael Grander was the one who told me about this tip. And I did it while I was on the phone with him because I was so excited to try it out. And a week later, my screen time was down 42%. Interesting. You know, funny you say that. I just got a new phone that automatically has this bedtime option. So it knows what time I usually go to bed, especially if I'm charging it at night. Yep. So it becomes black and white automatically. And it does do something different to my that. brain when I turn it on, because I do watch my phone in bed sometimes when I pick it up and turn it on, it's black and white. It's also a reminder to me of you probably shouldn't be spending a lot of time <laughs> yeah. on your phone right now, but it's really simple and easy. And I think it's quite effective as well. Yeah. I also think, you know, there's, there's a bit of a difference between doing stuff in bed and doing stuff before bed. But even, you know, even in the in-bed, again, if you find that it doesn't interfere with your sleep, then don't, you know, don't worry about it. And and there's another rule that Grander shared, which is, you know, he says you can make a rule that you're allowed to look at your phone, but you have to be standing in order to do it. Uh, and I kind of do a cheat version of that now where I'm allowed to look at my phone in bed, but I have to be sitting up in order to do it. So once I feel like, okay, I have to lay down because I'm starting to feel a little sleepy, then that's the cue to myself. Okay, you're feeling sleepy. It's time to go to bed. Put the phone down and off you go. I like that. How about caffeine? What's the truth about caffeine? Is that keeping us up at night? Um, maybe, but again, from talking to clinicians, in their, they all told me that in their experience, caffeine is almost never the problem. And what happens is, again, you often get people who because caffeine gets such a bad rap, they put in so much effort into quitting caffeine because maybe they really love their morning cup of coffee. And now they're dealing with caffeine withdrawal and just the general stress of having to give up this thing that they love. And, and that just puts more pressure on you to sleep because you're like, well, I'm doing all these things and I gave up caffeine, so I better sleep now. And that kind of attitude, again, makes it harder for us to sleep. So the advice that, that I got from clinicians and that I put in the book is ask yourself, is caffeine causing my problems, right? And in general, I like the, the rule of ask yourself what changed between now and when I slept well. And if you feel like caffeine factors into that, either because your caffeine habits changed or because maybe you're taking a new medication or, or doing something else that may have changed your caffeine metabolism, which I explain in the book, then maybe caffeine is your problem. And that could be a good starting point for you. 
But if caffeine, if you have no reason to think that caffeine is causing your sleep problems, then that's probably not the best place to start when it comes to trying to address your sleep problems. How about alcohol? A lot of people have a drink because they say it helps them unwind. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but no. Um, Alcohol is worldwide the most popular sleep aid still by far. And unfortunately, it's deceptively terrible for our sleep. And here's why. A lot of us, we think, and and I include myself there because I did this for a while. I would have, you know, an extra drink at happy hour just to be able to no, I was going to hit the pillow and pass out because that that those bouts with insomnia are so horrible that even though I knew I might wake up hungover in just a few hours, I just wanted that break. Uh, so I sympathize with everybody out there, but I want people to understand what's actually happening. Alcohol initially will help you fall asleep, and and it will do other. Me- and the reason it does that is through several rec- uh, mechanisms, including your body temperature rhythms, for example. Adenosine is the chemical that accumulates in our brain and makes us feel sleepy. That's what caffeine blocks. Uh, The adenosine will accumulate in your brain more quickly when you have alcohol. So it does a number of things that help you pass out. The problem is what happens later. Once you start to kind of sober up and go into alcohol withdrawal, all of those things go completely out of whack. Your temperature rhythms go, you know, start to change. Your adenosine levels suddenly drop and all these other things happen that make us actually wake up. And so for some of us, this manifests as you pass out in bed and maybe three or four hours later, you're suddenly wide awake, your chest is pounding and you're kind of sweating or you've got the chills or whatever. Um, And in other cases, you may not even realize it because your sleep is just sort of being disturbed. And now you're in these really light stages of sleep. So you're not getting that restoration that you normally would get from your sleep, but you're not fully awake. So you're not cognizant of the disturbance but you will still wake up and you will still feel pretty terrible. If not that day, then the next day when it all uh, catches up with you. So alcohol is really a bad idea. And in addition to all of that, it also kind of acts as a muscle relaxant. And so any muscle relaxant will put you at higher risk for snoring and sleep apnea because now your throat muscles, your tongue, all of the muscles in your body are more relaxed, which makes it more possible for your airway to start to close as you're sleeping. And then you have an even bigger problem. Thank you for the clarification. How about when it comes to exercise? Is there a time of day that we really should exercise or that we should avoid working out? I mean, the overall message I kept getting here is you should work out at whatever time you think you can stick to a workout. But there is um, a small amount, but interesting research on exercise and circadian rhythm, where if you exercise at certain times of the day, you can either advance or delay your biological clock. And for a long time, it was thought that you could only exercise the only way to kind of advance your clock, which is what most people are trying to do. They're trying to make themselves be more morning oriented. Um, It was long thought that the only way to do that was to exercise in the early morning hours. And there is some new research out now that I cite in the book that found another window in kind of the late afternoon where you could also exercise and it also had that sort of clock advancing potential. So that's great news For the night owls out there like me who maybe want to advance their clock but don't want to have to wake up early in the morning for a workout. And also for shift workers, uh, exercise can be really helpful. And forgive me that I don't remember the exact numbers, but, uh, but it is all in the book and very well laid out. But good news for night owls, good news for shift workers on that front. And how about a bedtime routine? We often talk about having a bedtime routine with kids. Parents don't really question that. There's bath, there's story time, and we know it's important for them. But what about for grownups? It is important for, for grownups 
For a few reasons. One, the the relaxing nature, I hope, in the activities that you're doing that lead up to your bedtime routine, just in the immediate impact, they allow you to, you know, help you to wind down a little bit. And that mental autopilot feature again comes into play where if you do roughly the same rituals every night and those rituals end in sleep, then they each start to become a cue for sleep. So your brain says, oh, we're reading a book now. I know what that means. We're getting ready for sleep. We're brushing our teeth now. I know what that means. We're getting ready for sleep Uh, and so on and so forth. The problem is people who have sleep problems don't always reap the benefits of this. Because you'll notice I said, when you do all these things and then they end in sleep, they become a cue for sleep. But that last part is kind of key for that whole process to work. Because if your bedtime routine always ends with you awake and frustrated in bed, then those things then become a cue to be awake and frustrated. Your body starts to say, oh crap, I know what we're about to do. We're about to get ready to do that thing where we have all these negative thoughts and we worry. And now your body basically starts getting ready for this, you know, to do battle almost in a way. It gets ready for this stressful experience that lies ahead. And you start to have the same kind of anxiety that you would if you needed to, you know, deliver some bad news to your boss or something else that you knew was going to be a negative experience. So I think the best advice that I got when I talked to sleep clinicians about this was to kind of take the pressure off the whole bedtime routine thing and just try to fill your bedtime routine with things that you enjoy. So again, what we often do as insomniacs is we try to fill our bedtime routine with all these things we think we should do. And even if they're things that are normally relaxing, let's say taking a hot bath before bed, we will often, instead of enjoying the way the water feels on our skin, we'll just be thinking about how much I hope this makes me sleep. And that's really not the mindset you want to be in. So I think two helpful questions when it comes to bedtime routines, if you're struggling with your sleep is one, what did I do before I had sleep problems? If you used to just watch TV and go to bed and you didn't really think much about it, then go back to doing that. And if maybe it's been so long that you don't remember what you used to do before, you know, when you slept well, or for whatever reason, you don't want to go back to that bedtime routine, then just ask yourself, what sounds like a nice way to spend the last hour to half hour of your day? And as long as it doesn't include something that's very clearly going to stimulate you, like bright light or caffeine or booze or drugs or whatever then just go with whatever sounds like a nice way to end the day. And if you feel like it's still a problem, you can go back to it. But the bedtime routine almost never is when you take that approach. And I like that in your book too, you talk about our overactive mind. And how many of us get into bed and that's when you start thinking about everything you've ever worried about and the grocery list and all of this stuff. What's your best strategy for for dealing with that when you feel like you just can't wind down, that your brain won't shut off? My favorite is is something in science called constructive worry. I just call it a worry list or a brain dump because I think that's easier to remember. And and I want to preface this by saying that when I first heard about this, I thought, well, Ambien doesn't make me sleep anymore, but this notebook exercise is going to. But But I promise you it's effective. And here's how it works. You divide a page down the center. So grab a notebook, divide a page down the center or use the left and right page. And on the left-hand side, You write down anything that's on your mind. Literally just dump your thoughts out onto this page as if it's kind of a to-do list. And then once once you feel like you've got everything down on the right-hand side of the page, you write down the very next step to resolving that issue. So you don't need to have the ultimate solution in mind. 
just the very next thing you can do to kind of push the ball forward in the right direction. And that might be as simple as calling someone for advice or maybe doing a little more more research on the issue, whatever it is. And if it's something that's out of your hands, then you just have to accept and move on. So write that down. And when you can't think of anything else that's on your mind, then you're done. You put the notebook away, shove it in your nightstand, whatever. And, And what this does is it eliminates the need because by by processing your day and processing your thoughts and feelings, which is something which is a natural thing that we all do, but by doing that before bed, you eliminate the need to do that in bed. And it also starts to form a new kind of mental autopilot association where your brain starts to say, oh, I get it. This is where we think and worry about things, not when my head hits the pillow. And also many people will notice they experience repetitive thoughts as they're trying to sleep. It's like the same thing just swirls over and over in your, in your head. And that happens because of the way memory works for us. You know, if, if I give you a phone number and you can't write it down, you'll probably repeat it to yourself over and over again to try to commit it to memory. It's the natural way we remember things when we don't have a better option. And so by writing things down on the page, you eliminate that need for your brain to keep trying to remember to deal with that issue because it's right there on a page. And what I found interesting is I did this for maybe two weeks every night. And after that, I felt like I didn't need to do it anymore. It's like my brain automatically started doing it. And when I started talking to sleep clinicians for this book, they told me that their general advice to patients is you'll need to do this for maybe two or three weeks. And then after that, you'll probably notice that you're just kind of doing it automatically and you don't need the notebook anymore. And that was my experience. It was like suddenly my brain got the message that Head on pillow equals it's time to sleep, not time to think and worry about things. I love that. Simple and easy and something we can all try as an experiment. One last question for you. In terms of our sleep environment, you have a whole chapter on this, but can you give us just a little bit about what do we do to make sure that our bedrooms, our beds are comfortable places that are more likely to help us sleep? I think the big thing is, again, trying to ask yourself, what is it that you think might be interfering with your sleep? You know, the general rules are accurate. You want it to be dark. You want it to be cool. You want it to be quiet. Uh, But you can get into a lot of details on how to do those things. And it's not always as easy as like, oh, I just want my room to be dark. Okay, done. I'll just buy some blackout shades. If you've ever played that game of the light is creeping through every angle of the blackout shade that you thought was going to make your room a cave, you know that that's not uh, quite so simple. And same if you're in a noisy environment, you know, just Wearing earplugs, for example, might not work for everybody. I really don't like sleeping in earplugs, so that didn't work for me. And so I kind of lay out in the book, I I tried to go into a lot more detail on specific things you can do to manage the sleep environment. But I just don't want people to get into the idea that they have to create this perfect sleep oasis in order to be able to sleep. Because what that will often do is you spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to perfect your bedroom and then you lay down and you realize, well, now I still can't sleep, which is obviously really frustrating. And so the reason why I put that part in the back of the book is I think, you know, mission number one is to try to identify the problem, which is chapter one of the book. I think mission one is try to identify the problem and try to figure out what it is that's keeping you awake, even within the confines of that problem. And that is often the first place where you can start because then you start to get a lot more bang for your buck. You start trying this one thing and you start feeling much better about it. You sleep much better. And then you start on a positive momentum. And just the same way sleep problems beget sleep problems, and you can start feeling like you're falling down this black hole there's no way out of. Once you start pulling on the right thread, sleep improvement begets sleep improvement. 
And the whole thing just builds on itself because you start to feel more sleep confidence. You start worrying less about the fact of maybe I'm not going to sleep. And that becomes a game changer because that makes the whole process move in the right direction. So the sleep environment stuff, if you feel like that's going to be the game changer for you, by all means, start there. But if you don't, start elsewhere. Diane, thank you so much for all of your tips on sleep. I hope everybody goes out and purchases a copy of The Sleep Fix. Filled with fun stuff. You made it really simple, easy. The spoon trick, for example. I won't tell everybody what it is, but (laughs) easy, fun, something we could all try. So I hope everybody goes out, buys a copy and figures out what works best for them. Awesome. Amy, thank you so much for having me. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Diane's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Diane's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, stop pressuring yourself to get eight hours of sleep. Diane encourages people to stop worrying so much about the exact number of hours they're sleeping. Instead, she said you should just consider how you feel. If you need a nap to get through the day, it could be a sign that you're not getting enough quality sleep at night. If, however, you only sleep six hours and you feel fine, don't think that you need to get more sleep. Everyone's body's a little different, and it's important to figure out what works best for you. I agree. I've worked with plenty of people in the therapy office over the years who felt mild panic about the fact that they weren't sleeping enough, but their bodies didn't seem to want to sleep more. And once they accepted that maybe they're just someone who doesn't need eight hours of sleep, they started to feel better. Number two, turn down the brightness of your screens at night. You've probably heard plenty of warnings that you shouldn't stare at screens before you go to bed. But I suspect the vast majority of us do it anyway. So I like that Diane suggested turning down the brightness of the screen as opposed to putting an end to screen time altogether. Sure, in a perfect world, we might all do some meditation and read a hardcover book in the hours leading up to bedtime. But a lot of people find TV helps them unwind or playing on their phones is an enjoyable pre-bedtime activity. So rather than convince yourself that you can't do those things, adjust the brightness. Your brain needs to recognize it's nighttime and it should create chemicals that help your brain prepare for sleep. But bright screens interfere with that process. Turning down the brightness or even switching to grayscale might help. It seems like a more reasonable request than telling people to avoid any and all screen time in the hours before bed. And number three, write down your thoughts before you get into bed. Diane said she started writing down her thoughts in a notebook before she went to sleep. This helped get all the thoughts out of her head and onto a piece of paper, which meant her brain didn't keep her awake as long. And she only needed to do it for a little while before she was able to train her brain to stop worrying so much in bed. That's a great idea. We've likely all had nights where we stay awake thinking about all the things we have to do tomorrow and how important it is not to forget to do any of them. Writing those things down on a piece of paper might put our minds at ease. And it might remind us that we don't have to remember everything when we wake up. Instead, just look at the list. If you feel like your brain won't shut off when you climb into bed, it might be worth giving this a try. You might find that you only need to do it a few times like Diane did before you train your brain to stop overthinking at bedtime. So those are three of Diane's strategies that I highly recommend. Stop pressuring yourself to get eight hours of sleep, turn down the brightness on your screens, and write down your thoughts before you get into bed. If you want to hear more of Diane's tips, check out her book, The Sleep Fix. It's filled with lots of great strategies that can help you sleep even better. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. 
If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.